welcome back to our Catacomb Synod Basics. Having read through and applied a good chunk of the Augsburg Confession, now it's time to start talking about pietism. I've made much ado about pietism, haven't I? I've talked about it quite a lot. And a lot of people are going to be asking, why? Why pietism? Why is this thing from 400 years ago so important to you? And why do you believe that it is the solution to a lot of what ails Lutheranism today? Well, here in my hand, I have the Pia Desideria by Philip Jacob Spener, the father of pietism in the Lutheran Church, and we're going to get into that. But first, let's address something. Pietism has a lot of connotations in the modern world. When you hear the word pietism, I'm sure what comes to mind is works righteousness. After all, the Methodists have their methods, and that comes from Wesley having interacted with German pietists, and he goes, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's start really working at uh, approaching salvation with fear and trembling, huh? <laughs> and then there's that awful, terrible book, The Pietist Option, where some David Frenchist tries to respond to books like The Benedict Option with this idea of, oh my goodness, it, we should be pietists. And by pietists, I mean a neoliberal worldly scum. Yeah. Yeah, pietism seems to be a toxic brand. So you're going to be asking, why am I pushing pietism? Well, I've got a question for you. If you call yourself a Lutheran, have you ever interacted with somebody who has no idea what Lutheranism is about? So they tell you, oh, you're a Lutheran, you must love gay pastors and antinomianism. Oh, you're a Lutheran, huh? You must not believe what the Bible says. Because Lutheran, as a word, has become a toxic brand to some groups. Lord knows you're probably going to interact with somebody one day who goes, Lutheran, huh? So you like to excommunicate right-wingers. Like, that's what you guys do. That's what you're all about. And that's what you're passionate about. And then you have to explain to them, no, Lutheranism is biblical Christianity. You know, the Bible teaches the solas. We hold to the solas. And we're going to stick with what the Bible says. The label of Lutheranism might be tarnished by modern-day individuals claiming to be Lutheran, but you're still a Lutheran. We are still Lutheran Christians, and we rejoice to be so. And this isn't just a problem in Lutheranism, where the word Lutheran has that connotation. I'm sure Roman Catholics are upset at always being confronted with, Oh, you're a Roman Catholic, huh? So you worship the Pope and you hate the Bible. And they're like, what are you talking about? My priest runs a Bible study. Oh, no, no, no. You guys are Roman Catholics. I'm going to see your label, take the worst elements of it, and say that that's you. I'm just going to make that assumption. And everybody has been doing this about pietism for a couple hundred years now without actually having looked at what pietism was from the start. I want to fight back against that because I believe that pietism, as initially formulated, was a great idea. 
It is a fantastic thing. It is something we need really, really, really badly. And we're going to get into that as we start going through the Pia Desideria. Right off the bat, who is Philip Jacob Spanner? Philip Jacob Spanner is a theologian in the German church in the 1600s. His book, the Pia Desideria, which just means pious desires, by the way, was published in 1675, sometime after the Thirty Years' War. He was raised during the Thirty Years' War, by the way, so he was accustomed to seeing a spiritual malaise all about him because people were dying left and right as vicious violence became the world around him. But somehow, Spener became a doctor of theology in the Lutheran Church. And so he writes the Pia Desideria to his fellow theologians and pastors. Here is from the salutation to the faithful leaders and pastors of the whole evangelical Christian church. May the Father of light and giver of all good things grant you, my fathers and brethren, beloved and esteemed in Christ Jesus, our chief shepherd, enlightened eyes of understanding to discern what is the hope of our calling, what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance for his saints, and how boundless is God's strength in us who believe that his mighty power is effectual diligence and zeal to be of good cheer and to strengthen others who may grow faint strength and courage with the weapons of our calling which are not fleshly but mighty for God to destroy the strongholds and frustrate the assaults on and all the defenses which are raised against the knowledge of God to take all reason captive in obedience to Christ and to be ready to punish all disobedience when the obedience of the believers is fulfilled. Blessing and success to observe with joy that the word that goes forth from God's mouth as the rain and the snow come down from heaven shall not return to God empty, but shall accomplish that which he purposes, and prosper in the thing for which he sent it. And to behold how the earth cultivated through your ministry produces first the blade, then the ear, than the full grain in the ear. Complete pleasure in the knowledge that through your ministry the name of God is hallowed, his kingdom extended, and his will is done, and that the salvation of many souls, the peace of your own consciences, and ultimately your eternal glory are achieved to the honor of his holy name. This is a theologian greeting his fellow leaders in the Lutheran Church. And he greets them with the intention of building them up in the faith. Why is this important? Well, there was another document already floating around for over a hundred years at this time that was intended to build up and help pastors and theologians. It was the large catechism. You see, we have the small catechism, which is basic Christian doctrine. You have the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, we have the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Absolution, plus a Table of Duties. Luther wrote the Large Catechism as a pastoral companion to the Small Catechism, going into much greater detail. Now, the Large Catechism teaches doctrine. And to a certain extent, it teaches praxis. But Spener here decides to expand on that practical aspect of it and how the faith should look in our lives, especially among leaders in the church. 
the large catechism is a beautiful work for us. But there's issues arising in the church that need to be addressed that the large catechism, unfortunately, isn't covering when it comes to instructing pastors and theologians. But make no mistake, Spanner's first and foremost priority is the laity. He goes to the pastors first in the hopes that we can see some changes in the laity. So he talks about distress in the conspectus of corrupt conditions in the church. He says, I shall not now speak of the distress of those members of the Christian church who are hidden and must seek their salvation with fear and trembling in the face of great danger. Those who dwell among heretics in the Babylonian captivity of anti-Christian Rome, those who live in Greece and the Orient under the equally severe tyranny of the Turks. Some in unbelievable ignorance and others mingling errors and shocking scandals with the truth. And those who are in churches in which there are many false doctrines because, although they have rejected the Pope, they have not attained purity in their teaching. The wretchedness of such people cannot be recalled by a godly soul without profound emotion. If we limit ourselves to our evangelical church, that is the Lutheran church, which according to its outward confession embraces the precious and pure gospel, brought clearly to light once again during the previous century through that blessed instrument of God, Dr. Luther, and in which alone we must therefore recognize that the true church is visible, we cannot turn our eyes upon it without having quickly to cast them down again in shame and distress. So we got problems. What do you do? about those problems. We have severe ones, and he will go over some of the rotten conditions in the church in his day, but how do you fight back? How do you help the church? Well, unfortunately, the Lutheran church is in a pickle. He says in the introduction, he brings this up, in former times, the most effective remedy was the convening in councils of the principal leaders of churches and delegates from all particular churches of consequence in order to deliberate about the common infirmity. Would to God that we were now in a position to entertain the hope of accomplishing something in this way. How often and anxiously have devout men desired this. If we wait for this to happen, however, we shall die before our wish is realized and reform will always be postponed. I do not know how responsibly to the uncertain future. I'm not sure whether for want of a council it would not be a suitable remedy at this time if Christian ministers would themselves not only write to one another in the fear of the Lord, but also discuss these important matters openly with one another in print and carefully ponder whatever may be useful to the people of God. In this way, for the sake of report and reflection, the thoughts of colleagues may be made known to others who are concerned about the work of our Lord. So what's Spainer's solution here? We can't have a council. We're not Rome. We're not orthodoxy. We can't go about having a council or having authoritarian theologians just putting the law down on the people. But we can talk, and we can talk in such a way that the people of God see it and they understand the priorities of our day.
Spoiler alert, this means an empowered laity. Doing things behind closed doors and waiting until everybody is on the same page is robbing God's children of an opportunity to actually think about this stuff and actually have an effective relationship with God. Spinner cared most about the laity in the Lutheran church. He wanted them transformed by the word. Have you ever had a home Bible study? Yeah, that's Spanner's baby. That's his thing. He basically invented the Bible study as Christians practice it today. And it makes for stronger Christians. I was discussing this with the deacons last night. Uh, do we need to rebrand on account of the toxic way people approach pietism? We floated the idea of calling it frontier Lutheranism. Of course, we're sticking with pietism for now because that's what we are as pietists. But it really is frontier Lutheranism too. The first Lutherans in America were pietists that went out and were able to have strong faith even when they could only see a pastor once a month at best. We're talking churches out there on the frontiers, some of them relegated to having communion maybe twice a year. And these people still had a strong faith. They still endured and stuck close to the word of God. That's fantastic. I want that for every single Christian on planet Earth, that we would be so dedicated to our Lord and to his word that we would stick around even when times are hard. And if Christians have to go back to the catacombs because every institutional church has decided it loves the world more than the word, we're going to need this. But I digress. Let's see if I'm speaking the truth. Do we have the same problems that Spanner saw? When he speaks of the defects in civil authorities, let's just go ahead and read this gem. When we observe the political estate and behold those in it who, according to divine prophecy, Isaiah 49 verse 23, made in the New Testament, should be foster fathers and nursing mothers, how few there are who remember that God gave them their scepters and staffs in order that they use their power to advance the kingdom of God. Instead, most of them, as is customary with great lords, live in those sins and debaucheries which usually go along with court life, and are regarded as virtually inseparable from it, while other magistrates are intent on seeking their own advantage. From their manner of life, one must conclude with sighs that few of them know what Christianity is, to say nothing of their being Christians and practicing the Christian life. How many of them there are who do not concern themselves at all with what is spiritual, who hold with Gallio that they have nothing to do with anything but the temporal. Even among those who still take an interest in the first table and mean to be of service to the church, how many there are who put their emphasis on maintaining the traditional pure religion and preventing the introduction of false religion, which is far from being all that is required of them. In fact, how many instances must one fear that their apparent zeal for our religion stems from a factious spirit or a design to further some political interest rather than from a love of truth? How ungrateful many of them are to the great goodness of God who liberated them from the stern yoke of papal clericalism and showed them what it was like 
a clericalism which those, including crowned heads who lived several hundred years ago, sufficiently experienced. Although the power was given to them in order to promote and not to suppress the church, they abused this power with an irresponsible Cesaro-Papism, and whenever some ministers of the church moved by God proposed to do something that is good, they arbitrarily obstruct it. It is to be lamented that in some places, congregations are better off where they are under a ruler of a different religious persuasion than are those who live under a ruler of their own religion but experience more hindrance than help from him. The former may have much to endure, yet they may not be altogether prevented from the practice of that which contributes to edification. What's Spanner saying? Our civic authorities have a job that God gave them. They're not doing it. Golly, I wonder if we're in a similar position today. I wonder if countries where they have state Lutheran churches see hijinks from the state toward the Lutheran churches. Hmm. I certainly wouldn't be thinking of a certain country that sacked all of its bishops because they wouldn't accept female ordination. Hmm. And I certainly wouldn't be thinking of a much bigger country that tells seminaries they're going to accept stuff like DEI, uh, or else they're going to lose their accreditation and federal funding. Yeah, I'd say we're pretty much in the same exact spot that Spainer was in, in Germany in the 1600s, where you got civic authorities that don't care about God, they don't care about the church, and they monkey around with the church to get exactly what they want out of it. Now that's a small section, and clearly one that just about every Christian can relate to. Our governments hate us. We understand this. But he has a lot more to say about pastors. Because the pastoral situation is ten times worse than it is for the civic situation. Are pastors serving God? Let's find out what he has to say about it. And do we relate to him too? Distressing his conditions in the political estate are... We preachers in the ecclesiastical estate cannot deny that our estate is also thoroughly corrupt. Thus, most of the deterioration in the church has its source in the two higher estates, that is, civic and clerical. Long ago, an old church father recommended that this conclusion be drawn. When you see a tree whose leaves are faded and withering, there is something wrong with the roots. So that when you see the people are undisciplined, you must realize that no doubt their priests are not holy. I wonder if there is a church body out there where just about half of the laity are okay with abortion and gay marriage and religious pluralism. I wonder if that comes back to the clergy as well, just as Spanner notes it happened in Germany. He continues, We must confess not only that men are to be found here and there in our estate who are guilty of open scandals, but also that there are fewer than may at first appear who do not really understand and practice true Christianity, which consists of more than avoiding manifest vices and living an outwardly moral life. Although, according to the common estimate of men, and as seen through eyes captivated by the fashion of the world, they may seem to be blameless, yet their lives reflect, subtly to be sure, but nonetheless plainly, a worldly spirit, marked by carnal pleasure, lust of the eye, and arrogant behavior, 
And so it is evident that they have never taken even the first practical principle of Christianity seriously, namely denial of self. Now, I would wonder whether we have certain pastors who are arrogant and worldly. You know, when I was first reading through the Pia Desideria, it shook me to my core because I had to ask myself, am I this guy? Am I a pleasing servant to my God? Am I a minister who is earnestly seeking God as an example to the laity? And I had to work on myself. But right now we have in the Lutheran churches, well, a whole lot of pastors who are acting and thinking in incredibly worldly ways. We have them getting into weird Twitter feuds. We have them setting up sock puppets so they can go after uh, uppity laity, guys that they don't really want in their churches. We have a lot of excommunications and bans that we're putting people under for asking if we can go back to the Bible. We have entire groups and leagues of pastors trying to force worldly ideas and worldly morality on the churches, and the fruit is evident. When you have a guild of pastors, so-called, pushing CRT on congregations, that's a problem. That's a big problem. So Spanner continues, Behold how they seek promotions, shift from parish to parish, and engage in all sorts of machinations. Look with ever so loving eyes, illuminated by the light of the Spirit. One will surely discover, many of whom in Christian love, one would like to think differently, are at bottom the same. That although they themselves do not realize it, they are still stuck fast in the old birth, and do not actually possess the true marks of a new birth. In many places, Paul would still complain, they all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, Philippians 2.21. Now here's an interesting thing. He says, No reasonable Christian will deny that those who do not themselves have true and godly faith cannot, as they ought, perform the duties of their office and through the word awaken faith in their hearers. Not to mention that such persons are unfitted to pray so as to be heard through which a godly preacher causes many to be blessed. They cannot possess the wisdom which is demanded of those who are to teach others with all necessary urgency and to guide them on the way of salvation. Have you noticed that our churches are dying and that they are headed toward a demographic cliff? Have you noticed that there are churches in the Lutheran bodies which are old? They don't do evangelism. They're not growing. In 20 years, these churches will have just plain disappeared. Spanner says, wait, look at the pastor. Is he a godly man? Is he truly transformed by the word? Is he seeking God in true devotion? It's interesting, he notes, I have no doubt that we would soon have an altogether different church if most of us ministers were of such a sort that we could unblushingly say to our congregations with Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, we know in a lot of these Lutheran churches, they're not exactly following godly doctrine, are they? I mean, ELCA, that just goes without saying. They're going to be gone in 20 years regardless because they're not following the word. When a pastor goes up to a pulpit and he is praying on behalf of the congregation, 
Is God hearing his prayers? Well, does God hear the prayers of a wicked man? And in confessional churches, if a pastor is out there holding to the quote-unquote soft antinomianism that is having its heyday today, is God going to hear their prayers? A man that is pro-sin, that teaches the laity that, oh, sin is okay, don't even bother with trying to not sin anymore, okay? The law can't guide you. It's just there to make you feel bad. Uh, Let it all hang loose and come confess it on Sunday. Does God look at that and say, ah, yes, I will answer their prayers for church growth? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. And there are far more problems with the clergy that Spanner saw in his day that we're going to get into next week. But as for us here in the Catacomb Synod, Our deacons and our ministers are instructed to be Christians that mean it, Lutherans that mean it. Because at its root, that's what pietism is. It's Lutheranism that means it. Amen and amen.